When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&As. It's Thursday morning, so hopefully people had enough time to get their questions in. So let's jump in and see what we got. First up, over on Floatplane, Kirko said they've left Floatplane and will be coming back to Patreon midway through September. Patreon has a yearly option to support creators as opposed to paying monthly, and they're going to take that up, but was wondering who takes hit the hit on the discount for paying yearly. Is it myself, Patreon, or both? It's me, but it's not a big deal. Um, so first of all, thank you so much for, first of all, supporting. But second of all, even thinking about that and asking the question is a really, really nice thing. And it's also a smart thing because you want to know where your money is going. So it's just, I'm always very humbled when people take the time to think about and ask questions like that. So thank you very much. But I have always said, and I've uh, always stuck to my guns at whatever is the easiest way for people to support is the right way to do it. And if somebody's listening to this and they really want to keep all the crap that I do going and they're not in a financial position to support, you could still click on all the affiliate links to buy. Even if you go to the Amazon general, like fill up your Amazon cart with anything, you know, trash bags, soda, whatever, then go to retro RGB, click on that link, which brings you to Amazon. But then it's like every one of those things had the affiliate code on it. You know, any way to support is super appreciated. And the fact that you would take the time to ask the question is awesome. So my very strong opinion is I don't care how you support. I just really appreciate that you do. And the small discount that you get for paying yearly doesn't, you know, it's not going to stop the podcast from rolling. But I do really appreciate you asking that question. Um, next, Kirko said they enjoy the weekly roundup and hope I remember to take some time out for myself to avoid burnout. Um, when doing stuff like this, that's impossible. That's a really nice thing for you to say, but unfortunately, the way algorithms and systems work, uh, w- you know, with all this stuff, if you don't continue to to grind away, it just you don't grow. And if you don't grow, you don't sustain. I think that's something that's really hard, uh, especially for people who aren't independent creators to, to visualize. Is if I do the exact same thing I did last year. I've lost money because everything else, especially in inflation. So I have to grow every year just to maintain. And it's kind of rough because those higher production videos are basically the best marketing that I could ever do. They don't usually make any money, but they're what you know pops up in people's feed who go, oh, I, I guess I am into this stuff. Let me subscribe to this guy. So without those, I can't grow. But with those, I'm hitting that 70, 80, 90 hour work week like I used to, like that grind for a couple of years. So it's kind of a, it's always a delicate balance. And I, I haven't, I've tried to slow down a bit so I could avoid that hardcore burnout I was getting every three or four months. 
And I just hit it again. I was scrambling to get the Tink 4K video out, then preparing for the expo, then doing that, which I loved the expo. There's you know, nothing negative to say about that. But then I'm coming back from it and I don't get to come home and rest. Then I get to have to go catch up for everything that I missed and then keep grinding away. So I just came out of another mild burnout. I think you could probably see I'm still a little tired, but I'll keep punching away. I get some more fun videos to put up and I'll try. I'll try to have a better balance between staying healthier and, uh, you know, and keeping trying to keep growing things. But it's really because of people like you and everybody else who, who supports that I could keep doing this at all. I mean, if it was just grinding away at this, YouTube pays like nothing. So uh, without the support, you know, I probably could still do it, but you you wouldn't get any of the extra projects, any of the open source stuff I'm a part of. It would just have to be a daily grind. So I don't think I'm ever going to avoid burnout. I just uh, really appreciate that, you know, people would even think to talk about that stuff. Also, I just noticed that somebody thumbs down that post. I'm going to thumbs up it. That's uh, that's odd. That was a very good question. Maybe that was a mistake. Oh, yeah. Randomly, not at all to what Kirko was saying. Um, if you ever see me thumbs down something in the comments, it's almost always an accident because I generally just ignore stuff that I don't like to see. But so often I'll scroll through and be like, nice, awesome, heart, thumbs up, heart, thumbs up. And a couple of times I've hearted and thumbs down a comment by accident. And I'll scroll back a day later looking to respond to somebody and I'll see it and go, oh, what an idiot. So <laughs> completely unrelated. If uh, I accidentally thumbs down your comment, it's never on purpose. If I don't like it, I'm just going to ignore it. <laughs> So anyway, thanks again, Kirko. Next up, Mike wants to know if I knew of any soundbars that are magnetically shielded or if that's even a thing they could reasonably expect to find. My guess is no, you'll never find one simply because soundbars were designed to go under flat panel TVs, which didn't need to be magnetically shielded. Now, maybe some speaker company out there used magnetically shielded speakers because that's what they've always used and they didn't think to change them, but I imagine that would have been a very early on thing that got phased out very quickly because when you're trying to make budget stuff, if your magnetically shielded speaker is eight bucks and the non-shielded one is six bucks, then that's going to start to add up over, you know, thousands and thousands of units. So I would, uh, I would say no, but let me continue with your question. See if there's something else I could help with. Um, they've been looking at setting up a new rack after being re-inspired by some of the retro cart setups and was thinking of having a CRT mounted on a shelf then having their OLED mounted to the front of the rack in such a way that they could move it to make the CRT available for use, while still being able to make the OLED available to, to use if they choose. The main issue, other than having the money to make it all happen, is they're not sure that, how they'd be able to mount speakers appropriately for use with OLED if it's going to move around, and it feels like a soundbar would solve that. They're okay with a bit of quality drop compared to the bookshelf speakers they use, but they don't want to deal with issues with having an unshielded speaker near and moving around the CRT. Uh, just build that as part of the cart. So the heaviest things in something like that are the monitors, the OLED TV, the sp and the speakers and the amp. And the consoles are just a fraction of the weight of all of that. So what if you build the speakers into the bottom shelf of the rack and then just aim them like one degree away from you. I know you're not supposed to do that for optimal sound, but you're trying to make the most, the most of this situation. So get yourself some shielded bookshelf speakers or even some shielded PC speakers. They're not the worst. So you could find those and often they'll have headphone jacks. So you could use decent headphones if you want to, or you could just go down the rabbit hole of high-end headphone amps, but that's a whole other crazy rabbit hole. But having decent bookshelf speakers, you know, maybe in the middle of the cart, 
separated as far apart as possible and then just slightly tweaked so if you're sitting in front of it instead of both of them hitting you in the face maybe they'll you know skim by your ears to give you a true stereo immersion you can always wiggle them around for the best placement too so that might be something to do even if you have to sacrifice consoles so if you mount all of this stuff up the amp the speakers the oled the crt you have it so if you spin the thing around all you do is spin the speakers around um, if you had one empty shelf where then you had to put one console at a time on, that would be infinitely easier than trying to, to do anything else with amps, speakers, mounting, and all of that. But I would just keep firing away these ideas and keep thinking about it because eventually you're just going to, it's going to click for your setup. And definitely keep looking on social media of other people's setups because that's where you'll get a lot of ideas or even the opposite ideas. You might see something that makes you smile like, oh, that's awesome. There's no chance that'll work for me. But Oh, and then it'll spark the idea and you'll be able to do it. So uh, good luck and obviously post pictures when it's done because I always love seeing those. Next, over on Patreon, Charles Madeer wanted to follow up on the question from a few weeks ago about trying to fix sync issues on an Ikigami HTM 1980R. I had suggested using an Xtron RGB interface to just give it a try, and it looks like that worked, at least for the consoles that Charles had tried so far. And I think that's both a really easy and kind of an annoying solution. So uh, it's easy if you have something like an older GSCART switch with a D-sub style output. You could just simply plug all your consoles into that, turn on the sync stripper, and then use the D-sub output to go to the input of the Xtron device, and that's it. You're totally done. And the Xtron device might fix it. You might need to toggle the dip switches on the Xtron box, depending on what consoles that you're using, but that doesn't add any latency at all, so it's not like you're adding lag to the signal. Um, but on the flip side, if you don't have something like that, you might have to make at least one custom cable, you know, SCART to VGA. Charles mentioned that they want to do everything through a VGA switch, so an RGBS signal through a D-sub connector. Uh, that would work as well. You would just have to make sure that you're getting C-Sync on those pins going out, so that would be trouble with PlayStation. You might actually have to switch that to component, which should still work through the Xtron box, but it's a good solution, and if... Uh, if it works for you for all the stuff that you need, even if the Xtron 160XI, even if you have to toggle the, the serration switches between consoles, I still would call that a win because you don't have to unplug and replug anything. Whereas there were some monitors out there where it, you would never be 100% compatible and you would actually have to switch between Xtron RGB interfaces depending on what console you were using. So fingers crossed that's all you need, but um, hopefully that is and hopefully now you can just enjoy your awesome monitor. Next up, Tony Escobar wanted to follow up on the discussion of what is the analog NT pinout. That's not the NT mini. That's the original analog NT that either had Tim's NES RGB or Kevin's HDMI kit in it. So you would need the pinout for the D sub connector because while RGBS should be pretty easy to find, it should be on the, uh, the normal pin pins for those. What about composite or S video? What pins could those come off? And what do you need to change the console to? I assume you would just need to turn the dial to disable the NES RGB, just like on an original NES RGB kit. But Tony wasn't able to get any information from analog at all. Um, their emails, uh, they didn't respond to one email. And the next response was basically how to use an analog DAC, not the original NT. So does anybody know the original pinout for that? Uh, I could try to bug Kevin if nobody seems to find it. I try not to bug Kevin unless I really need to. But if there really isn't 
any information out there at all if like by next week tony i don't have a, a message sent over to you remind me again and i'll just message kev and we'll put all of this stuff up on the console mods wiki but you know it's uh it's kind of shitty of analog to not have that stuff up it doesn't cost them any money to leave a pinout page up on their website you know i'm not saying you need you know white glove support for a product that's you know years old i'm just saying leave a pinout page up so people don't have to worry about this stuff so hopefully something good will come of this but yeah if no one happens to know it let me know tony and i'll I'll jump back on that next week one more from Tony, who just dove into using RetroNAS this week. It looks like they had a few bumps in the road getting the original login set up until you could then use Cockpit to just go from a browser. But they were able to kind of go through and get it worked uh, worked out. And Tony wants to know if I have any plans to make more RetroNAS videos. Um, I would love to. I would love to have the time to. There's a lot of things I would like to make a lot of videos on. I'd actually really like to make a series of videos about all of the unique features of the RetroTINK 4K as well. It's just time is the one thing that I have the least of. So I'm trying to get to the... It's always a, a try to hit a delicate balance of, you know, getting the weeklies done while also writing posts, while also trying to get new and exciting stuff out there to bring more people in to join our very cool community. So I'm going to try to go to do that but dan's got a bunch of videos too and hopefully more people will jump on board with this and if anybody doesn't know what retro nas is here's like the 30 second overview i'll leave a link to the project page uh, if anybody wants the full thing but basically you use one raspberry pi or a virtual machine on an existing linux server using unraid even that's what i use and you could host all of your ROMs and backups and ISOs in one place. And devices like Mister, uh, I believe some ODEs now too, Fixels and Seds, can just get the ROMs and backups right from your network. So no more managing in multiple places. You just get them all in one place. Uh, plus, it could do a million things like old PC protocols, PS2 uh, so you could load your games over the network, which support for that has gone through the roof in the past year or two in, in a good way, obviously. So that's uh, it's really exciting. I love the project and I'm so happy to hear that more people are embracing it because it's just it's making it's making playing these things so much easier and a little cheaper. If you already have a NAS or if you have an old Pi you want to use or something like that, Pi 4s are best, but you could use a 3 if you wanted. But if you think about how much it would cost to get like one terabyte uh SSDs for all of your devices or just have everything in one centralized location. If you have the ability, if your devices have the ability to do it and you are, you have the ability to just set up basic network stuff, I think it's awesome. So congrats, Tony. I'm sure you're going to love it. Sorry for the bumps in the road of the, the first couple of setup issues. I'm not sure if anything changed, but maybe I could try to uh, look into Dan's documentation, Dan Mons, the original creator, and see if uh, if there's something that could be updated to make it easier. Next up, MTTMCC is looking to build a small rolling cart that would eventually have a Tink 4K, a few consoles, and a small 4K gaming monitor, about 27 inches. Do I have any recommendations for super low latency monitors with features I would care about for this use case? Or if not, are there particular features or specs I'd look for in a monitor to pair with a Tink 4K? So this is a really hard question to answer because you're going to have to choose between resolution and refresh rate. And that's going to cause that's going to cause you to have to lose at least one feature. 
So I'm going to try to walk through it. I'm going to have a video coming up that talks a little bit more about this in the context of a crappy TV that I bought that I will be returning. Uh, but let me try to put it into perspective and I'll try not to ramble, but this is not an easy thing to solve. So first, panels will always run with lower latency if you run them in their native refresh rate. So if you got, for example, a 4K60 OLED, you would be able to use the Tink 4K going up to 4K60 with awesome CRT emulation fil uh, uh, filters, and everything would work great, but you wouldn't be able to get BFI. So you'd have a very low latency experience. You'd probably have four or five milliseconds total, uh, maybe six or seven milliseconds total, but let's just say no more than half a frame should be reasonable for something like that. Uh, and everything would look great, but you would not have the ability to run BFI, black frame insertion, which would help with the motion blur like I showed in the Tink 4K launch video. Now on the flip side, you could get a 4K 120 gaming monitor, and then you could kind of decide between running in 1080p 120, 4K 60, and then have the monitor to try to add BFI if the monitor supports it, but then you're going to run into different latency issues. So uh, here's the perfect example. Running 4K 60 might be four milliseconds of latency on the Tink, um, and that your monitor running in 4K 120 might only be four milliseconds, but in 4K 60, it might be eight. So that brings you up closer to a full frame of lag. Now on the flip side, if you got if you were running in 1080p 120, then you would be running at the native 120 refresh rate of the monitor, and you would end up getting lower latency on the monitor, but higher latency on the tank, which might equal to about the same. So it, depending on your use case, it may actually be better to get a 1080p 120 or a 1440p 120 monitor and then just use all of the settings on the tank. So your total tank latency might be eight or nine milliseconds, but now you still only have three or four on the monitor. So it would be the same, but then you could use all of the features, but then you lose the higher resolution CRT emulation filters. Uh, they still look amazing in 1080p and 1440p, but it, it is not as much detail. So it's one of those things that in a perfect world, the Tink 4K would have been able to output 4K 240 but then it would have been $3,000 and the trolls would have been right. It would have been too expensive. So Mike would be stupid to release a $3,000 scaler without having anything in between. Who knows? Maybe he still will in a couple of years. But so you have to choose the features that are most important to you, which is a really rough ask because how would you know before you bought the monitors? So my, my questions to you are how important is BFI do you use it in a bright room or a dark room? And will you be having any modern consoles connected? So if you only use stuff in a bright room, BFI is going to probably darken it too much. So forget about it. Just get 4K60. Don't use BFI at all. With the scanline uh, CRT emulation, that does it does help with the motion blur because it cuts through it. It's not as good as BFI, but it, it's very good. You're not going to dislike the monitor. But if you're like me and you prefer playing in a very dimly lit room, maybe getting that extra smooth motion from BFI is something that would benefit you. And on the uh, flip side, if you're using modern consoles or PC gaming that can do 120 hertz gaming, then that's your answer. Just run it in the lower resolution, but at 120 hertz. So that's definitely a question that I've been asking for a few months now that I just don't think is, I don't think there's a correct answer. 
um, one glimpse into a video I'm about to release, I picked up a TV that is sitting next to me. The box is behind me the other direction, I guess. But the TV can do 240 hertz at 1080p and then 4K up to 120. The latency is pretty high when you're not running it in 120 mode and running it in 1080p 240, it's very blurry because the scaling to 4K is crap. So it sucks at everything. <laughs> so it's one of those things where I tried to pick up a, a, a TV that I could use for retro RGB testing as well as just have a bedroom TV. And uh, I wish I didn't give away my other one because while that was 4K 60, it was four milliseconds of latency and it was fine. There was motion blur, but it was like a $300 TV and it's lasted five years. So six years or something. So I was actually better off with the original, which is why I'm returning this one. So you need to kind of figure out what's the total picture. You know, what's the the big picture for your gaming experience and choose. Um, I know this is a long answer and I, I wish I could have just done something like, yes, all you need is this monitor, but it's definitely not going to be that easy. So you have to pick and choose your features and you have to think of total latency in mind. You know, running it, uh, the native resolution of the panel in 60 hertz is going to be less lag on the tink but going to 120 is going to be more lag on the tank, but less lag on a 120 hertz monitor. So it might actually just all be end up being the same. I don't know. You're going to have to kind of look into any of this. But if you start to go down the rabbit hole and you're like, okay, I've narrowed it down, um, let me know. And maybe I could help with that. But you're going to have to still just figure out which features you'd be willing to skip because of there's just no perfect monitor and perfect scaler yet. Next up, Oliver Clare was wondering, where is a good place to find working Game Gear motherboards? Just going to pause a little bit longer to wait for the modders listening to finish laughing. Uh, Oliver, we're not laughing at you or your question. We're laughing at the Game Gear motherboards and the bad modders out there. First and foremost, the chances of you getting a Game Gear motherboard that's quote-unquote untouched is good, except how bad of condition is it in. Are the capacitors leaking but able to be cleaned? Have they already leaked and destroyed the motherboard? Is it going to be so much work that you're better off just you know pulling the chips off of it and tossing it? Uh, and on the flip side, if you've bought one that already has had its capacitors replaced, who did it? Was it some fly-by-night eBay modder who's selling you a gooped-up piece of crap that is probably going to die in a week? Or did you get it from a good modder who just happens to sell on eBay alongside people who might not be good modders? So it's a very, very hard question to ask. And I think what you're going to need to do is probably try to find game stores or uh, anybody who sells online that's reputable and get a working game gear and then have a modder recap it for you. There's a good chance that some people might procure all of this stuff for you. So maybe it's Maybe there's a modder that works with game stores, so you could send them the cash for the game gear, send them the, the cash for the cap kit, and then when they're done with it and you pay them for shipping and uh, in their time, that might work. But it's just kind of like every, all the other modder issues that you run into. You have to find somebody that's not too busy to do something like that. You have to hunt down working parts. And, you know, this is why game gears have been so notorious for, for working on, because you just never know what you're going to get. Um, and also the reason Oliver's looking for this is because he was looking to pick up a blue consoleized game gear enclosure from the Behar brothers to, uh, so that he could have a cool looking fully consoleized game gear. Um, and I think that's awesome. I had the one from the Behar brothers. It's very cool. It's just, uh, 
it's it's going to be the same problem that everybody with a Game Gear has. So hopefully you realize we're not laughing at you. We're laughing at Game Gears. Uh, I don't. I can't imagine you took that one the wrong way. But uh, <laughs> just for anybody else listening, I wasn't making fun of Oliver. I was only making fun of Game Gears and bad modders. But yeah, if anybody out there has any tips, let us know. But I think you're going to have to try to hunt this stuff down yourself as well as hunt down a modder that could do the cap replacement for you. Next up, Gemini Man has a question about DVD recorders from the mid-2000s. They have a Toshiba that's able to upscale, composite, and component sources to 1080p, so why did these devices never take off in the retro community as a viable scaler before the OSSC and Tink era? Lag. Lag is the number one thing because those were designed for TV signals, so those would be just as bad as those boxes that you see on Amazon for pretty cheap that could do component to HDMI, whereas on the flip side, lag doesn't matter with DVDs and VHS, and they do a pretty good job with 480i content like that. The next reason is resolution. Those devices were designed for 480i, so they would treat 240p as if it was 480i, because both are 15 kilohertz signals, so you'd get that blurry deinterlacing on a signal that was never interlaced to begin with. And the last is compatibility. While VHS is a very incompatible signal because you need time-based correction. You have that as well as the variable refresh rate between consoles. So no two consoles output the exact same signal, which is not the same as TV content. So it might not even work going into some DVD recorders. Uh, so you know, basically latency, compatibility, and signal processing. Now there are people, I think Angry Video Game Nerd used to record into a DVD recorder, which is why all the footage looked, uh, original footage looked flickery. But in James's defense back then, I mean, there really weren't many choices for doing this stuff easily. You can get an expensive PC rig and try to get a good capture, or you could just get it done and concentrate on the content, which is obviously the better move for angry video game nerd not any historians those should uh, should have taken the time to try to do it right but that was fun entertainment i wouldn't change the way he did it at the beginning but that's that's the answers to all of your questions it's essentially like using the worst of the scar to hdmi or composite to hdmi devices um, on a device that's never meant to have done that so it's a very good question but while I still think those are very good devices for transferring VHS to digital, not the best, but it's a solution that most people could handle. Hit play on one, hit record on the other, then hit stop, then hit finalize, then take that disc and rip it to your computer with free software and you're done. It's actually infinitely less work than so many of the other methods out there to get decent VHS transfer or, or analog video transfer at all. So I still love those, but not for video games ever couple of questions from Marcello Medini. I'm going to answer out of order just to get the technical stuff out first. Um, in the context of wanting to use dual RAM sticks on a mister, if you need analog video output, you could then just use direct video. So in Marcello's case, remove the analog IO board that has the analog video out, put a digital IO board in so you could still have digital audio out, and then add two RAM sticks. And that way you could use any of the beta cores that could take advantage of it. There's still no word on whether that's going to be necessary for any cores, but maybe. So it's, you know, if it's something you wanted to mess with, that's definitely cool. But what would be the best way to output it? Would it be RGB or would it, uh, would it be VGA or would it be component video? And some people out there are saying there's issues with component video. I think that's 
uh, has to do with the adapter you're using. If you use the one that Greg's been selling, you should not have any issues at all. It's sitting right there. I still have to double and triple check this one for him, but it should be totally fine. But for your particular setup, Marcello, uh, you have an Extron Crosspoint that you're running everything into. I think all you would need is a VGA or an HDMI to VGA converter. It's a you know retroRGB.link forward slash cheap DAC. Pick up any other ones there. Uh, the Ranky one works fine. A lot of people don't like it, but in the context of what you're doing here, I think it's totally fine. And then you just get a VGA to BNC cable and go right into your cross point, and that's it. Uh, you just have to set up your INI file correctly, add direct video, make sure HSync is one, I believe. Just double check the INI file, and that's it. That's all you would have to do. And you don't really need to worry about anything else. And the target devices are a 20L5 and a 14L2, which could handle RGB. So I would just do it that way. I don't think you would have any issues whatsoever doing it like that. Um, now, what about audio? Well, all of these HDMI DACs do have audio DACs built in. They're not the greatest, but it's that is going to be up to you on what you decide is important. So, for example, if you're going into a PVM's speaker, you're never going to hear the difference. And if you do, it's going to be very small. But then if you're going into something like a nice CRT, a 36-inch D-series, or especially into a stereo, you might want to think of a different solution. So if you're going into a stereo, that's easy. Use the digital audio out of the I.O. board. Uh, and just go spit if directly into your stereo, and that's it. And if you're going into your CRT uh, with good speakers, then you have to make a decision. My suggestion would be try the audio built into your DAC first and see if it's good enough. If you don't like the way it sounds, you could go and use a digital to analog converter for that, but that's an entirely different rabbit hole, and people will spend audiophiles will spend thousands of dollars just on a digital to analog converter. And the difference is up to you. Some people could swear that they hear every note of a difference between a really good $250 DAC and a $3,000 DAC, and other people can't tell the difference at all. And the only right answer is what your ears prefer. Also, try not to try not to let money influence. It's very easy to, to walk up to something. It's like wine, right? Uh, if you have a wine connoisseur give you a glass of wine that's excellent, um, and then give you the same exact glass and say, but this one is $3,000 a bottle. It very often tricks your brain into thinking it's better, even though it's the same bottle. You know, don't let that happen with audio. Try to fight that urge to do that. But uh, for audio, you're definitely going to have to pick and choose yourself. Um, and the last question, can I explain who the wizard was in Manhattan? So there was a, a person obviously suffering from mental illness who would plug his cell phone into a megaphone and play the same three songs over and over with the megaphone sitting on top of the do not walk sign on the corner aimed down my street. And he would play those songs over and over while dancing in the street protesting. And most of the time, people had no idea what he was actually protesting about. The last few months I was there, he was protesting people who file false police reports because he felt that all of the people all day long, every single day who called the cops on him were filing false police reports because he didn't think he was doing anything wrong. And for me personally, even with two ACs running in the summer and all windows closed, I could still hear those three songs rattling through my apartment. And in the fall and winter, even with the windows closed without the AC on, I couldn't even record video when he was out there dancing. So uh, that, that guy pissed me off so much 
not so much of the protesting and dancing, but the music disturbing every single person on that street every day for a couple hours. Why was he the wizard? Because he dressed like a wizard. He he's very tall. He was like six four, and then he had a wizard costume on with a big tall hat. So now you have a over seven foot tall wizard dancing around, protesting absolutely nothing, playing the same three songs over and over. So I always hesitate to talk about that because I don't want people to think that I'm mocking mental illness. I'm not mocking mental illness. I'm pissed that one human being took away from my life every single day for hours a day for years, years. You know, I always use that stupid analogy. Like if you saw a one-legged person walking down the street with a cane, you would be an asshole if you did anything other than give them the right away and be polite. But if that one-legged person came over and pulled out a gun, they're not handicapped anymore. They're a person with a gun. So if I just saw a crazy person dressed like a wizard, you know, I might snicker at the wizard costume, but I'm not going to mock that person's illness. However, if they're affecting my life negatively every single day, they're no longer mentally ill. They're just an asshole. So hopefully that came out okay. And uh, hopefully I answered your questions and hopefully I didn't piss off any of the other wizards out there. A couple of questions from Lily Larceny. First, they bought a PS2 Slim IDE Resurrector and they've been planning their installation, but they want to make sure that the size limit isn't going to be an issue. So the size limit originally was 128 gigabytes. However, the new OPL with the fat PS2 could use much larger drives. So is there any reason that the PS2 Slim with IDE re-enabled wouldn't be able to use those drives? I don't think so. I don't know for sure, but there's no technical reason that I could think of at the moment. Uh, you know, re-tapping into and adding the IDE drive all you're really doing is just adding those components back and interfacing the signal. So if the software and OPL would work the same, then it would work with whatever the fat hard drives would work or the fat PS2 hard drives would work with. I don't know that for sure. So if anybody wants to chime in on that, that would be cool. But I'm pretty sure that that's uh, the correct answer. Just as long as you do the mod, that should be fine. Next, Lily's been having the hardest time with her NES. With the same game, they might get instant boot, graphical errors, a solid gray screen, or a solid blue screen. They've disassembled and cleaned the games with alcohol and an eraser. They've cleaned the cards, uh, cartridge slot and board, replaced the cartridge slot with a new one, reflowed many points on the board, and even disabled the lockout chip. Also lifted the slot pins, replaced the power supply with a new triad, and everything else. But not only can they not get consistent game loading, this happens with five or six different NES boards, and they're all acting the same way. That is maddening. Um, it's possible that you have a bad CPU or PPU and, and that's what's causing it, but is it possible in five to six NES boards? Um, so here, I don't know where you got those, but here is a likely scenario. I, I'm speculating, I'm pulling this completely out of my ass here, but if you had bought a junk lot on eBay, sometimes those are game stores or resellers that just find a bunch of them, they don't have time to test them, or they test them, they have one tiny little problem, but they don't want to bother fixing them. So, you know, here's 10 for 100 bucks, you figure it out. Other times, it's game stores that are pretty good at fixing these things, and run into the same issue you had, and then sell the junk lot. So if that's where you got these from, is you, you picked them up from a junk lot, it is possible that one game store over the years have gotten hundreds of NESs, test every one, and found a handful of them with bad CPU and PPU chips in them. 
And that's what you bought. The ones that had the bad chips that they weren't able to repair. So that is completely guessing, but I wanted to at least lay out a plausible scenario as to why you may have ended up with something like this. But on the flip side, if you've been collecting NESs over the years and they're all working fine and they're all kept in decent condition, you know, they weren't underwater, nobody spilled a bottle of soda on them type of thing, and all of them started doing this, that would be crazy. I'm not really sure what what that would be. Um, Obviously, you've tried multiple games uh, and opening the games and making sure none of the components on the cartridges are bad. But because it's not so common, but you will see resistors need replacing on games or even, of course, capacitors. It's not common, but I have seen it happen. I have seen a game at least once that I could remember physically in front of me that uh, a customer uh, of a friend of mine who's a modder had one and it was a rare game that stopped working. And they said, could you just check it out? And my friend expected to have to do all this work to try to, you know, maybe fix traces. And the resistor just kind of looked weird and old. So they snipped it off, replaced it with a new one, and brought it right back to life. Not common, but it happens. So who knows? Maybe you just got the short end of the stick and, you know, the handful of games you're trying are the bad ones or something. But, you know, I I don't really have any other suggestions, unfortunately. I hate to leave you hanging here, but... Maybe just take uh, another look at things and maybe chime back in and let me know where you got these and and see. But that stinks. Um, You could find a good working NES, pull the chips out, and try adding them to these broken boards to see if that fixes it. But that's a lot of work. And you could add sockets to make it easier to swap in and out. But now you're buying sockets, you're desoldering all of these, you're adding the sockets to all of them. That's time and cost for you that you might not even need to do that. So... I don't know. Sorry, I kind of failed you here, Lily, but um, let me know what you find because I have a problematic NES and I just bought some random 72-pin connector I want to add into it tonight to see if it helps at all, but it's basically the same problem that you're having. So, weird. Next up, Lou for Blue's Retro Source had a question. It was awesome hanging out with you, Lou. I'm so glad you're able to make the trip. So much fun just uh, chilling with everybody over the weekend. Um, but Lou's question is about component video splitters. For their mister setup that's using direct video, they would like to replicate the simultaneous HDMI and analog output of the analog I.O. board. Their thoughts are to use a component splitter and have one output go to the CRT and the other go to a RetroTINK and then output that to an HDMI TV or capture card. Are there any lagless component splitters that will help you help them achieve that? Yeah, so um, what you would probably want to look into is component video distribution amps. So like a one by three component amp should be very cheap. Um, You could even get them from higher end companies where 20 years ago, that might've been a $500 item that you could pick up for 30 bucks on eBay. You might be able to find them cheap on Amazon for just modern, you know, lower end brands. And then just do the basic testing. Go, uh, Go into a tank, into your HDMI capture card and use that Super Mario World blue screen and just go direct into that, then go through the distribution amp. And if the analog noise looks exactly the same on both, it's a win. If not, if on one of them more noise than the other, then it's not. But, you know, that's kind of one of those things that's actually a fairly easy problem to deal with. You could also, if you have the space, just get an Extron Crosspoint Matrix switch and run everything through that. And now you could have all of your stuff that's component, composite, or S-video gone through that and you could go to whatever TVs or displays or scalers that you want. But if that's really the only thing that you're looking to accomplish, 
one component in to two or three out, then the distribution amp would be the cheapest. And obviously for anybody else listening, just know, know to use good cables. If you're using junk cables, you're going to get a junk signal no matter what. So pick up some pretty cheap HD Retrovision RCA to RCA cables. Uh, those are all linked on the site too, uh, for anybody else that's listening, but grab a set of those, use that for everything and you should be totally good to go. So, uh, you know, DM me if you need any specific recommendations on that. I don't have any here. Otherwise I'd have just sent you one. Um, I have a giant Extron Crosspoint switch, uh, but that's like the size of a PVM. So I'm not sure you'd want that in a New York apartment. Clearly I know what it's like to try to have a setup in an NYC place, but yeah, hopefully that points you in the right direction and let me know if you need anything. Next up, GameCube fan 74 wanted to follow up on the question from last week about trying to find a device that could force aspect ratio. And they said, what about internal digital to digital mods? Those can force aspect ratio any way that you'd like it. And I think that would be a great solution. You just would need to figure out what the total goal would be. So for example, if you already have uh, digital mods in your consoles, give that a try and see if it does what you're looking for. And if it does, then beautiful problem solved. On the flip side, though, if you're running all analog through a scaler and uh, you're, you know, maybe like a Tink 2X or something, so it doesn't really have aspect controls, what do you want to, where do you want to go from there? Would you be installing this digital mod just to force aspect ratio? And I would say, no, don't, don't spend your money there because it's not a feature you were looking for. But on the flip side, what if you had already planned on doing these installs anyway? Yeah, start doing those one at a time until you get your consoles installed and test one of them out first to make sure it does the aspect thing that you're looking for. But that would be a completely good solution that would give you quite a few benefits, you know, true digital scaling and all that other stuff. So that's going to be up to you to decide uh, because that's just, you know, it's some, this is one of these problems that's, that's easy to solve if you don't have a budget issue. So if you're like, oh yeah, I'll go buy an older DVDO scaler and put everything through this and might add three milliseconds of latency, but I could do everything I want. Is that what you want to do? Do you want to spend 500 bucks on a scaler for aspect ratio? Do you want to spend a couple hundred bucks per console? So it's really just a cost to solution question. Uh, and unfortunately, I still don't have any good answers for you. Your other question, is it worth upgrading your N64 digital and DC digital to the retro gem? Their only use case is outputting the original resolution to a BVM and a capture card. So I'll address the second one first because I want to make sure other people listening understand what you're doing. I'm going to speculate a little bit, but I, I would guess that your reason you're taking the digital output of these consoles, like let's use the N64 digital to be uh, as an example. You probably have an N64 that you wanted high quality video output for both your BVM and to capture. So why do an RGB mod and get a scaler when you could just do a digital mod and split that off and have your BVM accept one and then have your uh, capture card accept the other and use a cheap HDMI switch with two outputs for that. So that's why I'm assuming that's why GameCube Fan 74 is doing it that way. For anybody else out there, there's almost no reason to go from uh, to install a digital to digital mod to go into a BVM, which is an analog signal. Uh, there's a few other very niche use cases, but I just wanted to clear that up first because I know my fellow nerds might have their ears perk up like, ooh, is there a benefit to doing that? Not unless you're doing multiple things at once like GameCube fan is doing. But to answer the question, is it worth upgrading your N64 digital and DC digital to the gem? Well, if the only use case that you have for this is outputting the original one-to-one -one signal 
to a BVM and a capture card, then no, they're two excellent devices that already do that perfectly. And the gem is going to output the same exact one-to-one signal if you set it at its original resolution. So there's no, there's no benefit there. The only question to ask is what if the gem has features that those don't? So what if they get new features in the future? And unfortunately, there's no clear answer to that. I don't think PixelFX has addressed that at all. So what if the gem gets a new feature? Are Is the support for the N64 digital and DC digital and PS1 digital just canceled? Are there Will you have to pay for updates if you want to get them, if they're available at all? And that's not a dig. I know there's so many people out there that want to turn this into drama, but that is just a honest, straightforward question to ask. Because the truth is, whether you like the way that they set up the pricing for the gem or not, once a company charges for software updates, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. For the rest of the time that company is out, every time they talk about an update, people are going to ask, is this paid or not? Maybe they mean it in a nice way, maybe they don't. It doesn't matter. The question is always going to be asked. So is it worth upgrading the N64 digital and DC digital and I guess PS1 digital to the gem? Today, right now, no, because they're all excellent products and they all do basically the same thing. That's not throwing shade. I'm just talking about you get a true digital to digital signal. You get it scaled to reasonable resolutions. So no, not today, but is it worth upgrading in the future? It would only be if the gem is now offering a software feature that is not being backported to the other devices. That would be the only reason to upgrade. Um, And I really hope that the company would address that because a lot of people who have spent a lot of money on their products want to know, did they, what's going to happen in the future? Are there, is all support discontinued permanently? Are you going to get updates, but you have to pay for them? Are you just going to get free updates like the previous ones? Are, you know, are they canceling the promised updates like link cable support over PS1? Uh, there are all questions that, you know, unfortunately, PixelFX has left us all asking way more questions than answers. And if you want to, if you want to try to start drama over that, not you, GameCube fan 74, but if people listening want to try to start drama over that, I, I mean, it's just, I'm just being honest and blunt and there's no shade being thrown. It's just when people ask me these questions, I have a hard time answering because the honest answer can very easily be translated into, oh, Bob's talking crap about the software update. So I just, I'm trying to be transparent, but no matter what I do, I, it seems like I lose when it comes to pixel effects. So I'm just going to be honest and blunt, whether I'm talking happy or sad, it doesn't really matter. I'm just going to be honest and hopefully that's going to be good enough for everybody, but usually isn't. Next up, Robert noticed that their Sega Master System and Genesis controllers fit very tight into the controller ports. They have to jiggle them every time they connect or disconnect them. They didn't grow up with either of these consoles. Is that normal? Yeah, I mean, if you're talking about the death grip of like a monster cable, no. So you might want to check for bent pins or anything or any kind of debris inside the end of the controller cable. But if you mean you just got to, you know, they don't just pop in like a USB-C port. You actually have to wiggle them in. That's perfectly normal and probably a good thing because that way they won't accidentally pop out on you. Next question, can I recommend a good replacement battery for a PS3 controller? No, uh, and that is because I just haven't followed the updates on that. And power is something that I always take very seriously because I've watched it fail many times. I've also seen plenty of batteries expand, uh, which is scary because that could pop, explode, not likely to explode, but I have seen it. A friend of mine actually years ago had a cell phone battery, a cheap knockoff one, quite literally explode next to them right 
after they had gotten up. They were laying in bed playing with their phone. And they said, oh, I'm going to use the bathroom before I go to bed. Put their phone down, took three steps away, and the phone exploded. You know, that would have been a trip to the hospital for them at minimum if they were still, you know, playing with their phone. So I, uh, I would recommend just trying to look around and seeing reputable resellers who have vetted this stuff. Uh, you know, it's never going to be a perfect solution, but you probably can get something that's totally fine. And if anybody knows of any, please let me know. Uh, but I, you know, or at least something we could point people in the direction of. Does Console 5 already have these listed and I just never looked for them? Like there's a bunch of stuff out there that uh, that I'm sure is good, but I just can't give you an honest answer to it. I have to just kind of point you in the direction of other people. Sorry, Robert. Next up, the dressing gown wanted to know scenarios in which you have to worry about sync causing noise in your signal. And I'm going to break this down as easily as I can. I know there's a lot of info out there, even on the, my site and the YouTube channel. But basically, if you're using a fully shielded cable, you don't have to worry about this in 99.9% .9 of scenarios. Fully shielded cables that sync on composite video will look exactly like cables that sync on pure C-Sync from consoles that output it, as long as you're using everything shielded. So, for example, if you're taking a fully shielded SCART cable going directly into a monitor or scaler, then you have no issues. But if you go into a switch, and then on the output side of that switch, you're using an unshielded SCART to SCART cable, then interference will pop up. So as long as your shielding is correct and your switch isn't a badly made one, you'll never ever have interference on the lines. And once again, 99.9% .9 of cases. If you have partially shielded cables, or then running pure C-Sync or even Luma would be something that would be a little bit of a step up because on partially shielded cables, depending on how they're shielded, it's very likely that composite video interference could bleed into the other colors. But that's only on cables that aren't fully shielded. And then if your cables are completely unshielded, anything could add noise. Put a, you know, put your cell phone next to it and you might see some noise. So that's where a lot of the misconceptions of, oh, I need a sync stripper come from because you don't really. And, and almost, you never need a sync stripper for quality. You only need it for compatibility. So for example, if you're going into an Extron Crosspoint and you're using a PlayStation 1, then, and you're not using HD Retrovision cables or anything like that, then you do need a sync stripper because sync on Luma is not going to work with that. You need a pure C-Sync signal going into it. But on the flip side, if you're using, you know, a RetroTINK 4K, you know, even something that could scale it that high, if you're using a fully shielded cable that's sync on composite or sync on Luma, it's going to look perfect. So never use any kind of cables with a sync stripper unless you know for a fact that your total solution needs it. Or if you're going into devices like uh, the Extron RGB interfaces we talked about earlier, if you're using a SCART switch that already has a sync stripper built in, you zero need for two. So uh, hopefully that puts things into perspective. If you have any more questions, let me know. But basically, the better the cable you buy, the less you worry about all of this stuff. So just buy decent shielded cables. Basically, the ones that I link on RetroRGB are personally vetted by me. And while no company's perfect, you're going to hit a bump in the road now and then. Generally speaking, those are safe to use and they're fully shielded and you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. 
Next up, Steadicam Scott is using the Mr. Remote feature from Wizzo and love using the search option. Yeah, I freaking love that piece of software. I'm so appreciative for all the time Wizzo's put in for free for the Mr. community. I, I always like to put that in there, not implying that people should be charging for this. I just want to very politely remind everybody that we get to enjoy these things because some developers took the time to make it happen for us. So shout out to all of these devs that do this stuff. So appreciative. Um, also, Wizzo does have a Patreon, so don't, don't hesitate to sign up if uh, you love it as much as I do and you have the means to support. But uh, to the actual question, Scott's Mr. uses Update All, but they also have the older, unstable, nightly builds of the PlayStation 1, as well as the official PlayStation Core. For some reason, whenever they search for a PlayStation 1 game and select it in remote, it'll open in the unstable PlayStation Core instead of the official one. What's the best way to remove the unstable build so it won't appear again and... Uh, will they have to do something else for remote to work properly? They just don't want to break anything in the code. So try this. Um, first and foremost, back up all of the things on the SD card except the games folder. That won't be affected. So back up the console cores, the arcade cores, all that other stuff, just, just to have it. We should all be doing that you know, every couple of months anyway, just, just as peace of mind. It's barely going to take up any space. But after you're done backing it up, go into the console directory and delete everything. And then run update all, and that should just populate with all of the official stuff and everything else should be removed. That's the same if you have the problem I had recently where all of these folders showed up in my uh, subfolders in my arcade folder, and I couldn't figure out what the issue was. So I backed up just the arcade folder, deleted the contents, ran update all, and poof, it was completely fixed. So, uh, Hopefully, it's going to be that easy for you. I would just, at the very least, back up that console folder just in case. Who knows what could possibly go wrong? So back up that console folder, literally drag and drop it from the SD card to your desktop, delete the contents of the folder, leave the folder, just make sure it's empty, and rerun update all. And I like to run update all twice just in case it hiccups, but that should be all that you have to do. So uh, luckily, that should be a very easy solution for you. But let me know if you have any other issues with it. Next up, Scott Davis just found a new Samsung 27-inch 5K display with a 5120 by 2880 resolution in HDR. It could even rotate on the stand. So aside from the shock value of the $1,600 asking price, are there any known issues at going to 5K that they're not considering? And are there any devices that could scale to that? So no, what you're going to end up having to deal with is outputting 1080p, 1440p, or 4K to this panel, and then the panel will be doing the final scaling. So while there are, are no known issues with just going to 5K, like there's no, well, you can't go to 5K because it is the same issue as every other panel that needs to finish scaling. How is it going to finish scaling the image? Are there integer scale options? Can you turn the sharpness all the way up and have it actually do a sharp scale? Or is it going to do some crazy ringing artifact crap like, uh, like that TV I've been testing that hopefully I will have a video telling you all that you probably shouldn't buy it by, by this weekend. Maybe I won't put the video. Maybe it's going to be too depressing to do that. But anyway, to, to answer your question, <clears throat> um, there is no scaler that's going to go to 5K. Uh, nothing that I know of this year. Um, and there's no issues of that other than how do you scale to it? The panel is going to scale the resolution itself. Uh, 
is it going to do a good job? Is it going to add latency? Is it going to look okay? That Those are basically it. So going to 5K itself isn't an issue. It's just how you get there because no gaming scalers will do that right now. So, um, you know, if, if you were going to try that, uh, you, you might want to check out a time sleuth and you might want to kind of just go through and do some retro testing. You know what? Maybe I will finish up this stupid bad TV video because in showing that, doesn't just show a TV that I don't think you should buy for retro gaming. It might show people how to test this stuff if you get a panel that you're not sure if it's going to be good for gaming. And the very short, you know, the super short overview is check the total latency when mixed with different uh, signals. So 1080p 120 versus 4K 60, like I discussed earlier. Check what scan lines look like. Are Do you put on scan lines and it looks like a blurry pixely mess? Uh, why? Is it the sharpness setting? Is it just the panel array? BGR panels tend to look weirder than RGB for computers and sometimes gaming. So that might be an issue. So just test all of this stuff and see uh, and kind of just give a total overview of what happens. But yeah, I, I don't know. I'd love to see what, what would happen when we could scale that high. But it's just I don't think it's coming anytime soon for retro gaming or even modern gaming scalers. Uh, I just think that's going to require chips that are so expensive that it's not worth it for anybody to make at the moment. But I would love to see how all that looked. Well, that's it for this time. As always, if you have any questions at all, just ask wherever it is you support in the latest Q&A post. The way the services work, I can't really figure out what's an old or a new question on an old post. Plus, as you saw here today, I just love scrolling between the different services and talking as if we were hanging out together at a coffee shop or a bar or something, just having a conversation in real time. So any question you want, just ask it there. Uh, and as always, thanks to everybody who supports in any way, even just spreading the word about the support services or using affiliate links, all of that's what keeps this going. So thank you for everybody who supports and everybody who just listens and enjoys it. I really appreciate you all. Thank you all so much. And I'll see you next week.